Let's now turn for our scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, through the end of this chapter. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may look at uh, the passage before us as another stanza of a glorious song of God's amazing grace. And actually this stanza before us follows uh, the pattern of the last stanza, and that is that there is a movement. There is a movement from uh, the dreadful condition of those without Christ to the great change that God's grace makes. In the previous stanza, we saw that movement from dead in sin uh, to alive in Christ. And here that movement is from afar off, far off from God, to brought near in Christ. Now our text, verses 11 through 13, emphasize uh, the far-off situation of uh, these Ephesian converts before their conversion. And in this passage, we're given uh, insight into the wonder of God's grace as it indeed extended deep and far into the lost world. Grace that brings people from total darkness, the darkness of, of utter ignorance of God and idolatry, from life without God and to the bright light of his loving favor. God's grace in Christ reaches uh, the hopeless. That's our theme uh, from these verses this morning. And uh, we want to begin by considering how God's grace is magnified by remembering. That's the first uh, exhortation that we read in verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore, remember, remember that you once Gentiles, and then he goes on to describe their condition, 
apart from Christ. You know, we might compare this to what we hear so often in Scripture, uh, and that is a call to remembrance. We heard it this morning in uh, the giving of the law in Deuteronomy, where the Lord said to his redeemed people, and remember, remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord brought you from there with an outstretched hand, with a mighty arm. Remember your great deliverance. Such memory magnifies grace by the great contrast between bondage, bondage to Pharaoh, bondage to sin, and the difference that Christ makes. To see God's grace closely and to see God's grace clearly, Paul, in essence, says, look at it through the magnifying glass of the past. Now, Paul is writing here to Christians who had been saved out of paganism, you might say, out of idolatry, saved out of a situation in which there was no Bible reading, saved out of a situation in which there was no prayer to the living God in private, in their families, or in public, a situation in which there was no knowledge of forgiveness, a situation in which... Uh, there was no understanding of how to live before God. A situation in which there was no, no knowledge of the resurrection from the dead. No knowledge of eternal life that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a situation that describes so very, very many people in the world in which we live today. These were mostly first generation non-Jews who had become Christians. That's what Gentile means, children. Non-Jews. They didn't belong to uh, the uh, people of God. They didn't belong to Israel. They didn't have uh, the covenants and the promises and the word of God. They belonged to these nations that were in the darkness of unbelief without the word of God. They came out of one world into another world. They had left the ways, the practices of generations of their ancestors, of all their countrymen, the people in the city where they lived, their neighbors, their fellow workers, their friends. They had been brought out of that world in which they lived into a new world. And they all had a personal story to tell. No doubt their individual experiences varied from one to the next, but with common themes of God's grace that reached them in their unbelief and sin, and the light of his truth had shone upon them. They became believers in the Savior of whom they heard. They had a personal story, and they should go on telling that story. And they should tell it to themselves. They should tell it to themselves first of all. They should remember their former condition. And the change that they had experienced that brought them from a world of darkness and unbelief into this new world of light and truth, a world that is so different and a world that one can become accustomed to that can then be lived as the normal real world and that transition over time can make them forget what it was like to be without Christ and a way to take for granted 
this radical life that they now live in the light of the gospel. But they must not. They must remember it. Keep the wonder of grace alive, Paul in essence is saying, by comparing your past with your present. And there's a lesson here for all Christians. There are some of you here this morning who may have stories very similar to that of uh, these Ephesian converts, who may have grown up really without God, without the knowledge of Christ, without Bible reading in your home, without prayer at mealtime, without nurture in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, without hearing Bible stories read as children. But God in His grace reached you in His mercy. You may have a past, and it's a past to remember. It may have details that you would want to forget, and certainly there may be details that you wouldn't want to dwell on and that you wouldn't want to talk about. And you don't have to dwell on the details and you don't have to talk about those details in order to remember the great change that God's grace has brought to your life. And that is properly part of your Christian witness. Your Christian testimony is about the Lord Jesus Christ. But you ought not to be afraid or think that it's somehow uh, calling attention to yourself to also speak about what the Lord has done for you. Remember how the Lord Jesus directed this man who had been delivered from devils uh, to tell his family and his friends how Jesus had had compassion upon him and saved him. And that's part of the Christian testimony to speak about the great difference that God has made in our life. That's part, that should be part of your prayer life. Sometimes that might be a very helpful way to begin your prayers. You remember to yourself before God by rehearsing the mercy and the grace that he has shown to you. And that should help to warm your heart. That should help to inspire gratitude and praise by telling the story to yourself before the Lord by way of confession, even the way the psalmist does. Not only in Psalm 116, there are many instances of that kind of praise and thanksgiving that tells the story of God's grace. This can also be a great tonic. This can be a great help in the middle of personal trials. When you face things that you face because you're a Christian, or you face things that you never faced before you were a Christian, and they may seem harder in some respects than things you dealt with before you were a Christian. And then ask yourself, as you remember life B.C., before Christ, and ask yourself, would I go back there? Would I go back to live without Christ? When I was exempted from some of these present tests and trials, and you wouldn't, not for a moment. And that can be of great encouragement to you. And that can uh, fortify your, your spirit to be patient and persevering. Because despite whatever problems you have, you're not without Christ. You have a Savior. Remember that. Now, as I speak this way, I realize that there might be some of you that are saying to yourself, I don't have a story like that. I was never far off the way you've described uh, these Ephesians and the way you've described people that were brought up without the knowledge of the Savior. That, that doesn't describe me at all. Well, praise God for that. 
That's part of your story, actually, right? Every Christian has a story. Every believer has a testimony. and something that they're to remember. Even when we might think of the situation there in Ephesus. Are we to think that everyone that is addressed in this letter was born in an idolatrous situation with parents that didn't know God? No, some years had passed. This letter addresses children who are called to obey their parents in the Lord in a relationship to Christ. They're included in this description that's given of the saints. They're addressed among the saints. Were they individually, personally, ever without God and without hope in the world, without Bible reading, without the message of the gospel? No, no, many of them, no doubt, had heard from their earliest years already the difference that God's grace has made in their parents' lives. But that difference is for them. And they're included in this command to remember. Think of second-generation Israelites who themselves were never in Egypt, who themselves had not witnessed God's plagues, who themselves were not participating in that first Passover feast. But the Lord speaks to them also when He says, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Second generation, third generation, fourth generation, on as the years go by, the people of God were commanded to remember. Remember who they are without this grace. You see, God's people, they have a corporate identity. They're not just little individuals isolated and separate. They have a corporate identity as a body. And they have a shared story. And I was thinking as we, as we, as we sang, uh, that hymn about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and his appearance to shepherds. We weren't there, but you know, there's a sense in which that's our story. That's the story of God's grace to a lost race in the provision of such a savior. And we sing about the wonder of his coming these marvelous works that God performed on behalf of his people. It's like our story. The Israelites were commanded when they entered the land of Canaan to appear before the priests with uh, the tithe, with the first fruits of the gatherings uh, that they had harvested. And the priests would take the basket out of their hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord. And it says, you shall answer and say, before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish. He went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated our father, no, us. They're celebrating the grace of God to Abraham and his descendants who for generations had known this covenant-keeping, promising God, who, yes, brought them to the land of Egypt and then delivered them from the land of Egypt. And he's teaching them to make this their story. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders, and he brought us to this place. Now, do you imagine that the children were taught that 
testimony of God's power? Well, of course they were. God's promise and the fulfillment of God's faithful promises are to us and to our children. And even to those who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call unto himself. God's people have a shared story. The story of the gospel coming to our ancestors is our story. Everyone here, you go back far enough, and your your parents, your grandparents or great-grandparents were idolatrous pagans without the knowledge of Christ. And God's mercy reached them, and it's reached down from the generations to you here this morning. Now, that's something to talk about and to sing about, it seems to me. Every Christian has a personal story of grace. Your story may be, indeed, that from the time you were a child, you were taught about the Lord Jesus on your mother's knee, and she read Bible stories to you and taught you how to pray. And it may be that you can say that there was never a time when I didn't really trust in the Savior. Or it may be that there was a time, maybe when I was a teenager, maybe it was through a book I read, a friend I had, a class I took, when the things that I believe, I truly believe them, but they became much more real to me. That the Savior in whom I trusted appeared far more precious and glorious than before. I don't even know if I was converted before that. Right? Sometimes that's part of their story. But it's a story of God's grace. And it's good to know your story. It's good to practice it. It's good to remember it. It's good to tell others about it. Maybe it's through some trial that God brought you through that made you realize on a deeper level that you hadn't had before just how much you depend upon God and His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are details that are unique. There are common features that are shared to the Christian story. And it seems to me that there's a principle involved in this exhortation that extends beyond the situation of the Ephesians. And that is, grace is magnified by remembering. Reflect upon it. Should have many benefits. Should humble us. Make us realize indeed that it's God's grace that has come to us. Should comfort us. And it honors God. Grace is magnified by remembering. Secondly, we consider grace to those in the misery of being without. That at that time, remember that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This verse describes a state of spiritual destitution. It's actually enclosed by some of the most dreadful words that could be spoken in the human language. Without Christ. Without God. That characterized the lives of these people for generations. Imagine yourself uh, strolling through a cemetery there in Ephesus and looking at the gravestones. And you know what you will not find on those gravestones? You will not find words like, I know that my Redeemer lives. You will not find words like, asleep in Jesus. 
You will not find words like, in my Father's house are many mansions. And we could go on and on and on and describe the kinds of testimonies that dying saints have left for their family and for generations to come to read. You could look at any gravestone there in the cemetery in Ephesus, and if truth be told, it could be written without Christ, without God. Headstone after headstone after headstone, dating back 20, 40, 100, 150, 200, 250, on and on for generations without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. That describes more and more many people in the world in which we live today. But you know what the sad thing is? The world doesn't see it. To be without a home, to be without a job, to be without health care, to be without savings, to be without someone to love, oh, these things are all bad. And yes, they can be very difficult. But to be without Christ, to be without God, they don't know what that means. And they see none of their problems in relation to the facts the reality of their spiritual destitution without Christ, without God. But notice also that spiritual destitution is not only vertical. In other words, it it not only pertains to people's relationship to God, it's really to be without, without real community. It's to be without, uh, without shared love and without shared laws that give true order, that really promote human flourishing, that really serve a high purpose to life. You might say that our world suffers from homelessness, not just some inner city people, but our world suffers from being without a home, without uh, a place in that garden from which they were expelled so long ago, without the security of the true and only Father that gives comfort and strength and hope beyond temporal concerns, without a fellowship of people that truly are like-minded in what is most deep and what matters the most and what is true and good. You see, all these things also depend upon God. God with us. That was God's gracious uh, design. That was His grace for Israel. And these Gentiles had been without that. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They didn't belong to uh, a holy politic, if you will. They may have had citizenship in the greatest empire of the world. They may have been Roman citizens with all its privilege, but they weren't a part of a holy nation that God had set apart for his own treasure to be his people. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. They had no share in the covenant of grace, right? The covenants of promise, that really describes God's gracious dealings with his people for generation. With successive covenants, which all had common features of God's gracious promises to them. 
the covenant of grace to Abraham, the covenant of grace as it was revealed in the Mosaic covenant with the whole sacrificial system pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of forgiveness of sins through the shedding of blood. The promise to David that of his seed, a king would reign upon his throne forever, bringing peace, all issuing in the fullness of God's covenant grace revealed in the new covenant in Christ. Covenants marked by promise. They were strangers to that. They had no share in it. And we might add as well that no one cared for their souls. That's part of the picture. In verse 11, uh, these Gentiles, who were Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, called the uncircumcision. And in this context, this is like a term of, of judgment and reproach. You could hear it on the lips of a proud Israelite, the uncircumcision. They were without Israel's privilege, but they were judged by Israelite pride. And that's that's how we are to understand this language of the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. It's talking about those that, yeah, they had the badge of God's covenant promise, but in their pride and unbelief, they were just judgmental towards others. That's about as far as it goes. The sign of God's covenant faithfulness had become a badge of imagined superiority. These Gentiles were outside and with no way in to what treated them as outsiders with no access, a closed and sadly often a graceless community. No one cared for their souls, having no hope without God in the world. That's probably... Again, in combination with these other descriptions, what a, what a dreadful description. Could have been written on the arch of the great temple of Artemis where thousands would go. No hope. Can be written on the doors of our hospital rooms where people are dying and suffering today without God and without Christ. Could be written on the doormats of homes throughout this city where there is no Bible reading, where there is no knowledge of God, no hope. To be without Christ, to be without God, is to have no hope in the world. That was their misery. They didn't know it. They didn't feel it. But they came to see it. And it changed. And they're called to remember it. And see the marvelous grace that God showed. The grace of being brought near. Right? That's what's described. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's another great transition verse, right? It's like verse 4. We zeroed in on those first words. But God, those who are dead in trespasses and sins, in this horrible condition of, of servitude to sin and Satan, Slaves to their own desires, unresponsive to the truth, but God. And here there are those who were far off, without hope, without God in the world. But now, great transition, but now in Christ Jesus, 
you who once were far off have been brought near. Here is the language that proclaims sovereign grace. Even the language brought near. It doesn't say you came near. It doesn't say you overcame every obstacle. You somehow crashed through every difficulty and made your way to God. It doesn't say that. These things were bulldozed aside, if you will. They were swept aside by divine grace and power. In fact, there's not even a mention here of some loving missionary Jews who opened the door to them. There were loving missionary Jews who proclaimed the gospel to them. But even in this passage, Christ came and preached to them. They were instruments of God's working. There's even no mention of their faith. The text zeroes in on what God did. They were brought near. And the only agent of change that is mentioned here, that is, there is one cause affecting the difference from far off to near. And what is that? It's in that verse. The blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. You know, the high priest in the Old Covenant brought the blood of sacrifice into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. By the blood of Christ, who entered heaven, who entered the real Holy of Holies, after having offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, by the blood of Christ, Sinners who were far off are brought near, near to God, into his very presence, into his favor, where there is no condemnation. Because Christ, through his ultimate sacrifice, indeed broke down the barriers and brought these sinners near. And you notice also that this nearness makes up the whole distance of separation. Not only the vertical distance, but also the horizontal distance. You see, the picture of this text, and it continues throughout this passage, is God gathering a people together as one. It's not of God starting something brand new. God starting a new dispensation. The church age as if Israel was abandoned and that covenant just really didn't work very well and so I'm starting an entirely different plan. No, no, no. That's not the picture at all. The picture is that of gathering Gentiles to Israel, really, to make them one people by grace. Those who were strangers to the covenants of promise are now included in the covenant of promise. I already quoted uh Acts chapter 2, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. The idea is being called into fellowship with the people whom God had brought unto himself, the people to whom God had given the word of salvation, the people to whom God has revealed and now fulfilled his promises of redemption in Christ. You also have a share in that. The hopeless are gathered home. They're brought to the Father's house. They're given a place 
in the family. That's the beauty of the marvelous grace of God in bringing us to himself as a people who together are brought near to him and to one another. You share in that grace. Praise and magnify the God of grace. Receive and believe firmly for yourself this marvelous story of deliverance and redemption. And if it's not your story, at least in terms of the central details of being restored to God in peace, in which there is no condemnation in Christ, in which there is the forgiveness of sins, in which there is the assurance that He who can keep you from stumbling will present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. If you don't know that for yourself, the door is open. The way is made clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But whoever comes to Christ as the way, the truth, and the life for salvation from life without Christ, without God, will never be turned aside. He who comes unto me, I will by no means cast aside. So the wonder of the gospel proclamation is that open door to sinners who turn to God in their need, in their homelessness, in their hopelessness, in their alienation from God, in their lack of true community and fellowship. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that most people in your life in the workplace who are not Christians have a relatively small circle of friends and acquaintances? That's their world. You know more people. You have relationships with more people than most people because you're a member of the body of Christ. And you share in a fellowship and a belonging with a people that this poor lost world just does not know. And coming to God is coming home to the Father and to the family. Praise Him for the grace that brings us near. Amen.